Hi, I'm Ifegi. In this episode of Modern Law, we discuss our property rights in a cashless and digital economy. You know, part of the problem with freezing someone's assets is uh, that you may have no ability to, say, even hire a lawyer to, to challenge the, the mechanism, right? If you have no access to your accounts and, and the right to counsel doesn't really, doesn't apply. You're listening to Modern Law, presented by the Canadian Bar Association's National Magazine. So there's something interesting that connects two of the big events that captured our attention this year in Canada. The first is the Freedom Convoy protests and blockades against COVID-19 mandates and restrictions. You'll recall that the Canadian government gave the power to banks through the invocation of the Emergencies Act and without the need to obtain court orders to freeze the accounts of anyone suspected to be involved in the protests. Then, on a much larger scale, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, right on the heels of the convoy story, saw many Western countries, the EU, Britain, Japan, Switzerland, join forces to seize property and freeze bank accounts associated with Kremlin allies, in addition to freezing much of the country's currency reserves. Meanwhile, Russians trying to flee the country have been scrambling to figure out whether their bank accounts have been frozen by restrictions from both Russia and the West. So these efforts by governments to target assets may be justified, but they also raise an important question. What rights do we have, particularly here in Canada, when we get frozen out of our bank accounts in an increasingly cashless society? My guest today will tell us why our Charter of Rights and Freedoms provides us with insufficient protection against the sometimes arbitrary deployment of asset freezes or the imposition of other restrictions on our property rights. That guest is Malcolm Lavoie, an associate professor in the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. His research focuses on property law and constitutional law, and he's the author of a forthcoming book entitled Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution, which will be published in early 2023 by McGill-Queens University Press. Malcolm Lavoie, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about what it is that you do. Um, You know, obviously, we're going to talk about uh, property in a digital economy. Uh, but first, uh, you know, obviously research deals primarily with issues surrounding property law. And I, I know I know also that you, you discuss a lot of issues of Indigenous land tenure and jurisdiction, but you got this new book coming out too. So tell us a little bit about your areas of interest um, and, and, uh, and what you're working on. Sure. Thank, thanks very much. Um, yeah, so my, my primary research interests up to this point have been property law and constitutional law. Um, uh, you know, it's, uh, uh, it's, a, I studied property law because it's such a rich, uh, area of study properties, obviously part of the state legal system, but it's also deeply embedded in social norms and customs. It's fundamental to the structure of the economy as well as though to people's identity and social relations. So there's a lot to study there, including some enduring questions, questions like what is property? Um, why do we have private property rights? Um, and so it's a great privilege to get to spend my time looking at questions like that. I'm also interested in constitutional law. I, I guess for similar reasons, there are a lot of interesting, profound questions about you know, how our society and legal order is structured. You mentioned uh, my forthcoming book, Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution. And that book uh, combines both of these interests uh, in, in a way. Um, so the basic idea of the book is that Canada's constitution, in particular, the structural provisions of the Constitution Act 1867, 
are committed to an economic vision of the Constitution. And, and that vision includes uh, secure property rights, local governance autonomy, particularly with respect to provincial governments. But the Constitution is also pr uh, committed to economic integration and free interprovincial trade. And there's obviously some tensions among those commitments. And I argue in the book that our constitutional order reconciles those tensions in impressively thoughtful ways. Uh, but at the same time, uh, our legal system, our judges, legal thinkers have kind of lost touch with this economic vision of the Constitution in recent decades. And so part of the objective of the book is to say, look, you know, our structural, the structural provisions of the Constitution, not, not necessarily the Charter, uh, but the Constitution Act 1867 reflects certain values. If you're going to do a purpose of interpretation of the Constitution, you need to take those purposes and, and values in, in, into account. So um, I'm really excited for the book. As, as you mentioned, it's coming out in 2023. Uh, so th th thanks very much for mentioning it and giving me a chance to, 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 to talk about it. Well, I think I mean, I, it sounds as if though it has uh, some rapport with the, the topic and the subject matter that we're going to be discussing today. Um, but but quickly, like you said, that you seem to be hinting at the fact that um, this this economic framework uh, is, is being misinterpreted in some respects. Can you can you explain how? Sure, sure. So one one uh, example that I that I use in the book is the. RV Como interprovincial trade case from 2018. That was the that was the free the beer case um, involving a gentleman who had uh, driven from New Brunswick to, to Quebec to purchase uh, some beer and was pulled over on his way back uh, to New Brunswick um, and challenged the law on the basis that uh, there's a provision in the Constitution, Section 121, that says that uh, trade between the provinces should be free. So his argument was, why shouldn't I be allowed to uh, bring goods, in this case, beer, in from, uh, in from another province? And the Supreme Court of Canada, in a, in a unanimous decision, gave a very narrow reading to that provision. Section 121 is fairly clear um, in saying that there should be free trade in goods between the provinces. Uh, but nevertheless, the, the, the Supreme Court of Canada upheld a very broad power of provincial governments uh, to limit interprovincial trade. And I, I think they got that one wrong. I should say I was counsel for an intervener in that case. Um, I think they got that one wrong, but I think they got it wrong in interesting ways. Uh, in particular, they, they relied on an understanding of the structural provisions of the Constitution, you know, sections 91 and 92 uh, that, that grant uh, jurisdiction to provincial and, and federal legislative bodies, as, as well as section 121, um, that, that really was divorced from the underlying purposes. And, and, and I say that you, you need to read those provisions in a more purposive manner. Um, that they're not just open-ended grants of authority for whatever purposes a government may want. Uh, there are actually normative commitments of the Constitution, and one of them is to free interprovincial trade. It's one of several, um, and, and obviously that needs to be reconciled with the legislative authority of, of the provinces, um, among other values. Uh, but uh, you know, that, that was a case where I think they, they were getting it wrong. Um, there are you know, other cases uh, in other areas related to, to, to property where I think they've they've gotten things wrong. 
um, that's maybe a little bit more uh, closely related to our to our discussion for today. Uh, but one of them would be the Canadian Bill of Rights case, uh, Authorson. Uh, so the, you know, there, the, we should say there's no charter provision that protects property rights in Canada. Uh, property rights aren't directly protected by a constitutional right to property. When I say the Constitution is committed to secure property rights, it it it, it pursues that commitment in a, in an indirect manner. The legislature retains the authority to authorize interference with property rights, uh, but at the same time, there are common law protections for property, you know, a requirement that if, say, the government's going to take property without compensation, the legislature has to say so clearly. Um, there are also non-constitutional protections like the Canadian Bill of Rights, uh, and uh, courts have given an unduly narrow interpretation of, of those protections, I argue. Um, and, and so, you know, the fact that there's no charter right to property um, is relevant to our discussion today, but there are other kinds of protections, including common law protections, that are ultimately subject to legislative supremacy, uh, but that the that Canadian courts have have given an unduly restrained interpretation of. So let's talk about that a little bit, Malcolm. And I want to talk in particular about your article that you wrote in March in the Hub. You wrote about the use of the Emergencies Act in response to the Freedom Convoy, which was what prompted you to write the article. And obviously, you were discussing something that. Uh, that's problematic about our charter rights, which is the fact that it doesn't explicitly guarantee property rights. And so we had this situation where, however briefly, banks and other financial institutions had a legal obligation to monitor for certain protesters and freeze uh, the assets of anyone suspected of participating in public assemblies that disrupted trade or the functioning of critical infrastructure, that sort of thing. What was also significant is that the federal government protected banks from lawsuits from anyone who were who was targeted by the freeze. And I think it's also noteworthy that soon after the Freedom Convoy issue, uh, we had another significant event, which was the invasion of Ukraine, which also led to the freezing of tens of dollars of assets. It's obviously a, a different context, but to me, it illustrates the power that government have. So you know, what What I found interesting about your article is that you compare the freezing of bank accounts and digital assets to a form of digital jail. Uh, you know, the term digital jail, I should say, comes from uh, uh, an article by Howard Anglin, who sort of pointed out how far reaching some of these measures can be. And it's not to say that they they, they, they might not be justified in, in certain circumstances. It's just to highlight the severity of the impact that uh, you know, say, freezing digital accounts can have on an individual, and the, the idea is that um, you know, cash is not as significant as it once was. People don't really carry it. Um, many kinds of transactions, larger transactions, especially, it's it's not accepted. Um, and so, if you're frozen out of your bank accounts and and another digital. Um, accounts, your ability to sort of interact with the outside world is fairly significantly uh, restrained and more so than in past decades. And it's become, you know, easier uh, as a result of financial technology to, um, you know, immediately uh, free someone out of the economy, essentially. And, you know, so the, the impact on the individual can be severe. I, uh, you know, the I, I think that the the label digital jail is is provocative because it highlights 
the distinction or disparity between the kinds of legal protections and constitutional protections that exist when uh, someone's liberty is at stake, uh, you know, very significant procedural and substantive protections under the charter versus the protections that are at stake when sort of mere property is, is at stake. Um, and you know, highlights the fact that there is not a charter right to property under our constitution. And so the, there's potential for a very far-reaching restriction on the uh, rights or liberties of an individual, uh, their ability to function in society, and a commensurate uh, lack of constitutional protections, at least, that exist. Now, I, I mentioned that um, you know our constitutional structure um, provides for other kinds of protections, but they're essentially backed up by the legislature. And so the idea is that uh, legislators will uh, exercise judgment and determine when certain kinds of restrictions on property interests are justified and authorize those through law. The concern is that it's becoming easier and easier to, say, target people's digital assets and that let, let legislatures and, and federal parliament aren't taking this issue as seriously as they should be, um, aren't uh, offering the kind of oversight that there ought to be. And so the fact that there's this absence of constitutional protections in the charter becomes more significant. Um, and this is a, a, an issue that was highlighted shortly after the Emergencies Act measures were, were put into place. I think there was a piece by uh, Jamie uh, Sarkinak in the um, National Post where she highlighted the absence, essentially, of, of procedural protections, of you know, basic things like being able to find out why your assets were frozen or a mechanism for challenging an asset freeze. Uh, you know, those are really basic procedural protections that uh, weren't in place. And, and given that um, there's, a, there's a potential for these measures to have such a severe impact on individuals, uh, you, would, you would expect those, those kinds of protections to be in place. And so, you know, I don't think I'm saying that we should never use uh, asset freezes. It might be, you know, justified in certain cases, you know, for, perhaps for some of the, the individuals involved in the uh, convoy, it was justified. Uh, perhaps it's justified for people who are connected to the Putin regime in Russia. Uh, but I'm also saying that there should be prote legal protections in place. There should be, you know, procedural protections, a fair process for for challenging these these sorts of measures, and they shouldn't be used lightly uh, because they are severe in their impact, um, and in some ways, I think. Uh, comparable to uh, to a jail sentence. How come Canada's charter doesn't more explicitly protect property rights? There was obviously an opportunity to do it, and I believe it was discussed to some extent. You know, before 1982, Canada essentially had a system of parliamentary supremacy. It wouldn't be right to say we didn't have rights. We we did have rights. They were protected by the common law, and they were backed up uh, by Parliament. The idea. Uh, uh, you know, under the British model of of, uh, of legal protections that we had, was that ultimately, you know, it's ultimately up to Parliament to authorize restrictions on rights. But there's an expectation that Parliament would take its 
uh, responsibilities seriously and only authorize those when they're justified. And that applied not just to property, but to other kinds of rights. Um, in 1982, we moved to a system where you had a constitutional bill of rights. Uh, the impetus for that, as I'm sure most of your listeners know, was the was from the government of, of Pierre Trudeau. And the, the early drafts of the charter uh, put forward by the, by the Pierre Trudeau government included constitutional protections for property, which is not, not surprising. Uh, the Canadian Bill of Rights had uh, protections for property. Uh, property rights were seen as a sort of fundamental part of the liberal rights tradition. Uh, so the initial drafts included property rights, but they were uh, they were dropped uh, through the negotiation process. There's an excellent article on this topic uh, by Dwight Newman and Laurel Binion. Uh, anyway, so you know it, it was left out, uh, you know, as part of this big constitutional negotiation process to build as much consensus as possible. There was, I think, there's also a sense in which it reflected maybe the um, the sort of ideological tenor of the times, uh, the sort of late seventies, early eighties was a time of, uh, perhaps greater faith in, uh, government, uh, oversight and control of the economy than, than you see in subsequent decades or in earlier decades. There's also the, the concern that some folks had at the time of patriation about Canada going down the road of the Lochner era in the United States when the U.S. Supreme Court gave a robust interpretation of economic rights that precluded certain kinds of um, uh, sort of legislation regulating things like, uh, well, property and, and uh, working conditions and that, and that kind of thing. Uh, there was a concern that if you uh, constitutionally entrenched property, you'd open the door to those kinds of restrictions on on on, um, on on legislation of that nature. So that was that was part of, of what was going on, and and so you know it, it ended up being left out as part of the uh, of the negotiation process. Now there are other legal protections under the charter that presumably we could tie to property. Uh, how would that work, and uh, why why is it you know is it enough? Is it not enough? So there are there are um, other charter rights that could have incidental effects protecting property rights. So, for example, the Section 2B right to freedom of expression, you, you know, if, if government were to target someone's property on the basis that they didn't like the views they were espousing, that could uh, be found to be an infringement of Section 2B. However, the core right that's being protection is expression. Um, it's, it's, it's not the property that we're really concerned about. And so as long as the restraint on expression is found to be justified, you could have, you know, even very severe impacts on, on property. Uh, you know, another example might be section 15, right to equality. If you had a measure that was, uh, depriving uh, only certain groups of their property interests in a manner that was discriminatory, uh, that could be an infringement. But again, the focus isn't on the property. The focus is on the discriminatory nature of the measure. Now, there are a couple of provisions that on their face have the potential to create more than just incidental protection for property. I, 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 you know, the, I think the, the prime candidates would be uh, Section 7 and Section 8. So Section 7 protects life, liberty, and security of the person. You could make an argument that uh, the Section 7 right to liberty uh, should include the liberty to hold property, uh, something like that. 
However, courts have been fairly reticent about bringing property in through the back door. One of the sort of core things we know about the charter is that there was a decision to exclude property from the charter. And so to bring property back in through the back door um, would be seen, I suppose, to be contrary to those to those intentions. I, mean, I, I don't think um, courts would be wrong to be worried about that. Uh, similarly, Section 8 protects against unreasonable search or seizure, the protection against seizure could um, create some protections for property. However, again, in interpreting that provision, courts have emphasized the fact that it's about privacy, not property. And so the core interest that's being protected is privacy rather than property rights. And to give an expansive interpretation of the right against seizure would bring, bring property in through the back door, contrary uh, to the intentions of, of the framers in 1982. And so I think it's pretty unlikely that you're going to get uh, any significant direct protections for property through an expansive provision of, say, Section 7 or Section 8. There's always the possibility for incidental protection of property, but in those cases, the focus is on some other interest, say, the right to expression or the right to privacy, rather than protecting property per se. And so you have the potential for, you know, very severe interference with with property with fairly limited uh, constitutional scrutiny, at least from a charter point of view. But it's interesting that you mentioned uh, Section 8 and privacy because, I mean, the thing about ownership of digital goods, for example, is that they just don't feel like the ownership of physical goods, right? And, and I think it's in large part because there is a significant convergence of private property rights and and rights to personal privacy. Uh, I understand we're talking about the charter here and it's search and seizure, but this fusion of privacy concerns and 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 property is an interesting one and one that we seem to be having a hard time dealing with these days in our in our digital economy. And how are governments or even the courts interpreting that relationship between the two? I'm uh I, I should say I'm you know I'm not a, a criminal law scholar. I'm not exactly uh, up to date on all the latest jurisprudence on on Section Eight. You know, my understanding is though the focus of that jurisprudence is on is on the privacy dimension, and that you you get um, greater constitutional traction if you can link something to privacy rather than uh, a mere deprivation of property. But these issues these issues are are connected, right? You know the uh, sort of digital financial economy, the big changes we've seen in the financial system over over the past few decades have given rise to some some significant concentrations of power. Part of that, you know, is the ability of, say, a government to identify an individual and and demand that financial institutions, say, freeze their accounts. But of course there's also uh, the dimension of of financial data and the ability to uh, harness that data relatively uh, easily and cheaply and analyze that data in ways that might serve the interests of financial intermediaries or might serve the interests of, of, of government. And so I think there are important related issues um, there as well. Um, you know, I'm in the hub piece, I was primarily identifying the, the property dimension, but there's clearly privacy issues here as well. Yeah. And we see that with, you know, their concerns about governments also wanting to digitalize currency. Um, I, there are privacy concerns that, that are raised there. Um, 
uh, I don't know if that's really a property rights issue, though. Some of the same issues would arise with government digital currency. There are potential privacy issues there. Um, there are also potential issues about the security of people's interests, right? Um, you know, one of the supposed advantages of traditional cryptocurrency, if I can call it that, it's not that old, but, um, you know, decentralized uh, cryptocurrency is th this idea that, uh, that it's, that it is decentralized, that there isn't a central body uh, controlling it, um, that uh, it can be anonymous, it can be difficult to trace, certainly difficult to um, seize if you don't have the password. And so there's this insulation or supposed insulation from um, both private and government interference. Uh, you know, maybe that wouldn't exist to the same degree with a and I should say that 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 uh, decentralization and that difficulty in uh, that that anonymity, that decentralization, that uh, difficulty in say seizing assets, that you know has certain advantages, I suppose, um, from the point of view of an individual who's concerned about say government takings or or something like that or government oversight. But of course, it also comes with big problems. Um, uh, you know, the potential for money laundering, for terrorism financing, uh, the big up, upswing in, in ransomware attacks, you know, cryptocurrency is the payment of choice for, for ransomware attacks for, for reasons that, that, that may be obvious. Um, so, you know, you've got this, uh, sort of parallel financial system developing that maybe solves certain problems, but also creates other problems. And, and, you know, maybe governments can help address some of those through uh, government uh, cryptocurrency. But, you know, I think certain principles apply whether you're talking about the, say, traditional finance, finance system or whether you're talking about, um, you know, government cryptocurrency. What you need is a, a financial system that is regulated by law um, where you, you don't have the ability to say launder money or, or finance illegal causes um, with impunity. So you need it to be regulated by law, but at the same time, you need those interests and those accounts to be secure. Otherwise people are gonna look for an alternative. And one of the potential problems with say the overuse of tools like freezing people's accounts or doing it in a way where there isn't sufficient procedural or substantive protections is that you'll drive people away from um, the regulated uh, financial system, whether that's um, uh, the traditional financial system or whether that's um, central bank cryptocurrency. And you'll drive them towards this, this um, you know, more decent, more decentralized options. Uh, but those come with big, big downsides. And, you know, I don't I don't see cryptocurrency as an alternative to the financial system. It may be a complement. And, and there's another problem, uh, I think, with the, you know, because crypto does uh, lie outside our traditional legal structures and it is decentralized, uh, you know, you have these situations where sometimes someone who has crypto gets shut out of being able to access his or her assets shouldn't that be folded in somehow into a system where you know we can we can give some sort of recourse to people 
to claim their rights on those kinds of assets. I think the idea that we can have a financial system uh, that's totally unregulated by any kind of centralized adjudication system or legal system is 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 a fantasy, right? This idea that it can be entirely self um, self-regulating or 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 uh, yes, automated, I suppose. Yeah, automated might be the better word. Um, th- there's a lot of reasons why that can't work. Uh, you know, one of them, as you say, is that you know, there can be harsh consequences if you if you lose your password or you make a mistake or or something like this. Uh, there's there's there may be no recourse. And of course, over time, the traditional financial system and the traditional legal system has developed mechanisms for for dealing with these kinds of things. You know, an unjust enrichment claim, say, if you uh, transfer something uh, by mistake, uh, that's just one example. You know, there are also issues relating to uh, bankruptcy in these in these cases where you essentially need someone to voluntarily give up uh, the password. Uh, you know, cases where um, someone has a legal liability and their assets are tied up in in crypto. It's it's really not easy to get at those to to get at those assets. And I suppose you might see that as an upside um, in some circumstances. But from the point of view of a legal system as a whole, um, it's a potential it's a potential problem. Um, and you know, I I I think that the the sweet spot, as I say, is secure fi- a secure financial system a, a financial system where people's interests are protected where they can rely on the stable and predictable application of law and not you know have to worry about say arbitrary seizures or, or freezes um, but at the same time you know one that is regulated by law regulated by law in all the ordinary sort of private law transactions where you can um, reverse a, a mistake or deal with something that's say inequitable uh, but also you know uh, Restrictions related to things like, say, money laundering and and uh, terrorism financing. I think that that has to be part of a financial system. And as I said, the idea that we can have a, a financial system that serves uh, the common good of society that's entirely automated, that doesn't rely on a centralized legal system at all, uh, that doesn't seem realistic to me. So I, I gather from the, what you're saying is that we should be thinking about designing a property system for for digital assets or digital properties, uh, is that is that correct? Yeah, I mean, if 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 that if if if, um, if you know di- if we're talking about digital assets like cryptocurrencies, if that's going to be and it seems like it is here to stay, um, we need to think of a, a legal regime that's going to be suited to that. Um, if we're talking about say more traditional financial accounts, I think we similarly need to reflect upon uh, the potential for sort of concentrations of power. Um, the potential for uh, abuse both by uh, financial institutions and by governments and come up with mechanisms for providing that 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 secure level of protection but at the same time acknowledging that uh, justified regulations um, will also be necessary is there at all a debate alive today as to whether we should be making property a more protected constitutional right I mean, the pros, it seems to me, are that obviously we give security to businesses and individuals, even foreign interests. We have, you know, we have these trade agreements uh, or these investment protection agreements regarding property. And the idea is that we shouldn't be freezing these things arbitrarily. 
Uh, one would think that presumably that's a pretty good thing in a democracy. Uh, I don't know if there are, are there cons to that, and you know, are people arguing against that? Are people arguing for it? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say it's a top of mind issue for for most people. There are certainly folks out there who are in favor of stronger protections for property rights. I know um, the Kenny government in Alberta, for instance, uh, uh, ha- ha put forward some proposals, and I think had a committee studying the issue of protections. I think it's quite unlikely that we'll get a general constitutional amendment that applies across the country. There's been some discussion of the potential for a bilateral constitutional amendment that would just protect property rights in one jurisdiction. Uh, That might be more realistic. You just need to get parliament and a provincial legislature on on board, although the protections would be, I think, less far-reaching. So, you know, there's some discussion of it. I, I think it's unlikely that you'll get constitutional entrenchment anytime soon but there are there are other there are other options uh, you can have ordinary legislation that provides procedural protections provides substantive protections unless a subsequent legislative act uh, ex- expressly says otherwise and so the Canadian Bill of Rights would be an example of that I mentioned the Canadian Bill of Rights uh, earlier it uh, requires that you know if property is to be taken away it has to be by due process of law. The Supreme Court of Canada in the Authorson decision gave a very narrow reading of what due process of law means. Uh, but of course, the Canadian Bill of Rights is, 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 in formal terms, an ordinary federal statute, so it can be amended. You could change the level of protection in the Canadian Bill of Rights to, say, require that property can't be uh, deprived, uh, people can't be deprived of property except in accordance with the principles of fundamental justice. So take the language out of Section 7. Um, and, and, you know, the way the Canadian Bill of Rights works is that it it essentially applies unless a subsequent federal act says that it doesn't uh, operate in that case. And so you could have more robust legislated protections for property. That Canadian Bill of Rights is federal. You could do something similar at the provincial level. There are a few different mechanisms you could, you could use to enhance protection for property. Um, And, uh, you know, part of what I was trying to do with this piece in the hub was to highlight that that might be something we would want to look at. Um, You know, historically, outright asset seizures have been fairly rare in Canada, certainly without compensation. So, you know, it's not right to say that, you know, property rights have been radically insecure in Canada because we don't have uh, the protection of the charter. We have, you know, protection of the the common law um, and we have the sort of backstop of the legislature and the, and the expectation that the legislature will only authorize takings of property when it's, when it's truly justified. But part of what I was saying with this article was, well, we have this new set of tools that uh, governments have uh, that make it really easy to uh, target and seize and freeze digital assets. And they might be tempted to use that as a means of of social control going forward. And that might mean that we would want to take another look at more secure protections for property. Um, You know, there, you know, there are upsides of that, you know, you're creating greater security for individual owners. You mentioned our, our, our bilateral trade and investment treaties. We already protect the property rights. Many Canadians might not realize this. We already provide a fairly uh, robust level of protection for the property rights of foreign investors from many countries uh, who can challenge measures that uh, take their property without compensation 
um, through uh, uh, international arbitration. And so we've got these robust protections for foreign investors in Canada, but we don't extend the same level of protection to Canadian property owners. And so I think there's a pretty strong case for somewhat stronger protections. Um, the arguments against constitutional entrenchment, well, you'd say, you know, we're, we're uh, you know, giving unelected judges more power, we're tying the hands of government uh, to, uh, to make policy. Um, and, uh, that, you know, that may or may not be a good thing. Um, you know, it's, it's really a question of who decides, right? If you trust the legislative branch to only authorize interference with property when it's truly justified, then it's not such a big deal that you don't have charter protections. Um, however, if you think the, the legislative branch is going to be less reliable in that regard, uh, stronger protections for property might be a good idea. Uh, whether they're, um, you know, constitutionally entrenched or 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 simply entrenched uh, through through legislation. Obviously, Canada has a very particular constitutional framework, but I'm wondering how we compare to other, let's say, common law countries or other countries, uh, other Western democracies in general on this on this front. So among liberal democracies with a constitutional bill of rights, Canada is a major outlier. Um, in that it has a Bill of Rights, but it doesn't include uh, property in that Bill of Rights. Uh, so you have countries where uh, essentially parliamentary supremacy uh, still holds. Um, the United Kingdom, to some degree, um, although uh, there are there are also um, European human rights instruments that have that have applied there. Um, but among countries where you have a constitutional bill of rights that bill of rights almost always includes some kind of protection for property and so you know in comparative studies of constitutions canada is, is seen as an outlier to the extent that it includes a constitutional bill of rights um but that bill of rights does not include uh property so you know the the natural uh the natural move for canadians in thinking about our constitution is to compare it to the united states and say well you know we're just different from the united states in that the united states has a constitutional uh protect has constitutional protections for property but canada doesn't in fact we're we're sort of offside to a degree or different maybe a better a more neutral way of saying it uh from most countries that have a constitutional bill of rights most countries with a constitutional bill of rights have property among the protected rights so finally do you think do you think that we you know as we do transition to a cashless economy as we do habituate ourselves to trading increasingly in digital assets and as we, you know, leave our digital signature all over all over our lives and and in the way we we you know we participate in this economy, do you think that this issue of revisiting the fundamentals of our property rights is something that is going to emerge in the coming years? Is this, uh, you know, you, you said it wasn't top of mind in, in people's minds right now, but it seems as if though we are coming to grips with this reality. And I'm wondering how long we can put it off without really addressing it. I think there have been technological changes, as, as I mentioned, that um, have, have sort of changed, have the potential uh, to change how people look at, at, at these issues. So, you know, up to this point, you know, asset freezes and seizures um, 
haven't been a regular feature of our of our system of government. Uh, certainly, you know, it, it happens, but it's regulated by law. It's uh, there are you know, pr- protections in place. Um, you know, for for instance, proceeds of of, of crime. Um, but sort of outright, uh, um, you know, seizures of of assets or property ha- haven't been a regular feature. Property rights have been fairly secure in, in Canada uh, up, up to this point. And, you know, I, I think that's an important but maybe unacknowledged um, factor in Canada's economic success, the fact that it's uh, has that we have such a high standard of living, the fact that, um, you know, people from all over the world uh, want to move to Canada. Part of that, you know, that, I don't think that would be the case if we had radically insecure property rights. So we should, you know, we should we shouldn't overstate the problem. Um, up to this point, our legal system has done a fairly good job of uh, providing for secure property interests. But there are there are changes underway. Uh, there are you know new concentrations of power created by technology. Uh, most of the discussion of that up to this point. Has been on the privacy dimension, the the concentrations of power that private companies have through um, access to data, and the potential for for governments to use that as well. Um, but there's also a potential, uh, I think, threat to property interests here. That it becomes easier and easier with a few clicks to say free someone out of the economy um, because they're not, you know for some reason that may not be justified or that, that, that may be justified, but it's applied too broadly um, or in a way that doesn't provide robust procedural protections. And so I think there's a potential if this, you know, if these tools come to be used more and more by governments, because they are, they're a tempting option, right? Um, you're able to have a really major impact and a major deterrent effect on individuals uh, without having to essentially lift a finger, um, without the potential for, um, uh, say, you know, in, in dealing with the, the convoy protesters, for example, if you're concerned about um, the potential for for violence or unrest, um, this is something that you can do without without say escalating the situation in physical terms, but nevertheless have uh, a big impact. So it's a tempting tool. Um, the problem is that there might not be adequate protections in place. And so I do think over the coming years, this may become uh, a bigger topic of conversation, particularly if these kinds of tools are used more regularly. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, you know, and, and again, uh, just to tie it to the whole Ukraine sanctions exam or the Russian sanctions example, there's a similar reasoning behind that, which is that from, you know, from a click of a button, you can inflict some serious harm on another party without having to engage in bloodshed and violence. And it seems like a, a fairly soft use of power, but we're not really sure what, what the consequences are in the long run of, again, habituating ourselves to using those kinds of tools. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think I think part of why I see this as a future issue is that it is such a potentially potent tool for achieving, you know, whatever government policy objectives are, are on the table. So you know, it's 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 something that governments are going to be tempted to do, uh, but I think there are some pretty fundamental values of our legal system, of our system of government, that are at stake here. If the tool is used too broadly or not in a targeted manner, 
um, and without those kinds of procedural protections um, in place to allow someone to challenge it, um, to ensure that uh, someone has the means uh, to challenge it. You know, part of the problem with freezing someone's assets is uh, that you may have no ability to, say, even hire a lawyer to, to challenge the, the mechanism, right? If you have no access to your accounts and, and the right to counsel uh, doesn't really, doesn't apply essentially if, if all you're doing is taking someone's bank account. Uh, so there are, you know, potential, there's potential for abuse here. Um, uh, even if there's also potential valid uses of these kinds of tools. Malcolm Lavoie, I want to thank you for joining us today. And I'd like to invite our listeners to keep an eye out for your upcoming book, Trade and Commerce, Canada's Economic Constitution, to be published next year. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Modern Law, one of our CBA podcasts. You can hear this podcast and others on our main CBA channel on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. Subscribe to receive notifications for new episodes. And to hear us in French, listen to The Womadale. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and colleagues. And if you have any comments, feedback, and suggestions, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter at CBA NatMag and on Facebook. And check out our coverage of legal affairs at nationalmagazine.ca. I'd also be remiss if I didn't give a big thank you to our podcast editor, John McGill, for all his help in making us sound great. We'll catch you next month.